Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week, Jay Axer returns to the podcast. Last time Jay was here, we had a very rewarding conversation about the effort of figuring out what you really love and sticking to it no matter what the costs are. There will be a link to that episode in the show notes, and I highly recommend giving it a listen if you haven't already. It's one of our most popular episodes to date. In this episode, we spend most of our time talking to Jay about his personal project developing a dungeon crawler game. It is a fantastic concept, but I want to give you a heads up on one thing right away. There is a chance that you may never get to play this game. Now this fact is something that I have had to come to terms with, and I want to prepare you for the same disappointment that I feel. I am being a little silly, but I take the time to make this bad joke because there are some valuable insights into Jay's motivation for making this game that just don't include the publication of a marketable product. It's art for art's sake, and when you hear Jay talk about his passion for this project, you understand how liberating it can be to work on something whose sole reward is the satisfaction of letting yourself enjoy the process without ever having to worry about the need for it to make money. Jay is very clear that there isn't anything wrong with loving a project this much and wanting it to be sold and make money. That's just not why he's doing it. We also spend a little time talking about what it means to give advice as an experienced professional artist and how careful we should be when handing it out. There was actually a lot more that we had in mind to discuss with Jay on this episode, but the initial conversation had so much to offer that we let it take over and we don't feel bad about it. I do look forward to talking to Jay more in the future, and I'm sure that you do too. Let's listen. Jay, thank you for coming back. You didn't get sick of us the first time. No, no, I could, I could just live here. This is totally fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. Uh, you know, we won't even charge you rent. There's lots of things that we're going to talk to you about. And some of them are uh, very serious, very business oriented, put on your serious face. Uh, you know, people's lives are at stake. But first, um, there's something that you're working on that we would love to talk about. You're making a video game. Um, so far, single handedly is what we can gather. Tell us yeah. about this. When do we get to play um, it? <laughs> uh, playing it is uncertain. It's more of a vertical slice right now than anything. Um, and for people who are unfamiliar with the vertical slice, that really is just an example of what a game's going to be like, um, kind of hitting all the tones and the notes and the play uh, loop and, and what have you. 
Um, so you've got your visuals and your design and your execution, but it's more like this is a demo rather than this is the whole game. Uh, but it's being designed as though it's the whole game because I was doing it for the hell of it, really. Um, it's a dungeon crawler. It's a mostly isometric uh, dungeon crawler. I post stuff about it online every once in a while. It gets a little response. Most people, you know, it's I don't post it in the places where it would get the most response, which is like game dev arenas and stuff like that, mostly because I'm keeping it isolated for a reason. But um, I'm doing everything myself, um, which means there is no programming in it yet because I tend to shy away from programming because I, I used to mess around with it when I was younger. It wasn't really where my interest lies, uh, but I have plenty of people I can option as to, to kind of get that moving. Um, but really the the project is is being designed as though a team of people were designing it and executing on it artistically and whatnot but it's really just me and that's because i did game design and stuff like that before i got into art and then once i got into art i kind of liked doing more than just one type of art and more than just art so that delves into music approach um art and design game design systems etc so on so uh top to bottom anything that's on that project right now is me and nobody else and the reason for that is because when i started the project it was because i had burnt out completely from industry work and i felt like i never really got to work on a project i really cared about in a way that was anything more than just somebody executing on everyone else's ideas and not being able to really contribute their own so that lack of agency led to the execution of this game now it looks so what was the uh sorry what was the inspiration for the game that you want to make like when i'm thinking of making a game i always think i'm gonna want this from this this from this this from this and i just you know say now kiss uh, so what was the, your thoughts? Yeah, so really I could have gone in a lot of directions. Originally I was going to do like a side-scroller kind of story game, um, and I realized it was a little too similar to like Night in the Woods or something like that, and the last thing I want to do is work on something for fun and have everybody immediately go, oh, that's like thing, that's like thing, and I'm kind of, you'll get that no matter what, but I kind of was like, mm, I'm going to go a little deeper than this. Uh, something that I always like playing or dungeon crawlers, stuff like that. And usually when people think about it, they, they mention Torchlight, they mention Diablo. Um, and I kind of was like, I think there's still some wiggle room in that space to do some of the familiar and kind of outside of the familiar. Um, but a lot of design in dungeon crawler or in RPGs and whatnot is reiteration of the same ideas, but not going too far out of it because once you leave the mainstream, you kind of leave your audience behind. That's why a lot of times you get like the Holy Trinity, which is, you know, a tank damage dealer healer. And those don't execute outside of those immediate necessities because it's kind of like, well, everybody knows that. Why reinvent the wheel? But in this case, you know, there's room for a lot of different wheels. And so that was kind of my starting point. I was like, if I made a dungeon crawler, and I was just kind of like, what are the, the ideas where you're sitting around and like, oh, you know, it'd be cool as opposed to, well, that won't work and just blue skied on my own instead of with input about other people, where would I end up? And so it ended up being a hybridization of uh, kind of medieval with very, very modern um, approach. So you've got characters wearing like tactical gear and what have you going into a space that's been closed for a long time, which is more of a medieval space. So it's kind of, you know, the chocolate and the peanut butter thing, hopefully where they, they mesh in an interesting way that doesn't feel completely disjointed. 
So I didn't want to make Diablo. I didn't want to make Torchlight. Um, and honestly, isometric is harder to execute on visually and make it look interesting because you're really putting yourself into a box and then just angling it slightly. Um, but I wanted to make something modular that could have a whole bunch of repurposed assets that don't always look like they're just the same thing in that space and see if I could push it a little bit. And uh, and it worked out. And uh, as I built on it, I started thinking about what that meant, like outside of systems, like what would the story be? You know, what would the story beats be? And how could that be put into a gameplay that's meant to have kind of like a roguelike loop to it, but not a roguelike like Hades or something, which by the way, when I started Hades wasn't a thing and hadn't been announced at all. So it had nothing to do with Hades. Um, actually, Hades kind of upset me when it came out because I had recently shown people some stuff and they're like, oh, cool. And then Hades came out and they're like, oh, it's just like Hades. And I'm like, no, no, Hades is like what I was doing, if anything. Um, but that's just, you get that in the industry too, people doing tandem ideas. I mean, isometric roguelite is not going to be like a particular thing. Plenty of those will still happen. They'll happen now. But Hades is very, very different from what I was doing. I want it to be very story-focused, story-heavy. Um, and actually, the, one of the number one inspirations was Rogue Legacy, if you've ever heard of that, which is where you, you choose one of a number of characters with traits, you play that, and when they perish, then their, their progency is kind of what you choose from. And so I went with an Explorer's Guild where there are different classes, which are different characters, and you could choose from a set number with those varied stats and ranges. And as you unlock things, anytime you die, what might pop up is just from a greater pool. So it's it's similar to that, but it's got a lot of progression because uh, systems wide, um, systems wise. Sorry, I know I'm kind of going on weird tangents, so hopefully this isn't boring as hell. But uh, what keeps me engaged in the game is heavy exploration and heavy levels of progression. If I'm playing the game for 20 hours and on the 20th hour, I'm playing the same game I was playing at the 10th hour and at the 10th hour, I'm playing the same game I was playing on the first hour. I feel that for this project, that's a bit of a failure. There should be things that are being introduced that weren't in the pool before things you're coming across and circumstances you're discovering that you didn't know about before and systems that are able to build on that. That's extremely complex. And we're certainly not approaching the dwarf fortress level of complexity, which really can only exist to that degree because it's not supported heavily on the art side. And it's really just text and systems and execution, but it, it nestles itself pretty heavily on the, the discovery and exploration angle. Um, and with that, you get story. So it's a huge undertaking but done in a way that honestly i think a small team could still execute on it reasonably and finish the project um it's really just kind of trying to avoid pitfalls that i didn't really like in games i played but is still hitting home with me because it's a personally everything that's done is just done the way i would want it to be um, and if it resonates with people, and so far, anytime I talk about it, it seems to resonate pretty heavily, that's cool. But a lot of the heavy lifting still needs to be done. The tangents are awesome. Uh, and it's you know why we wanted to open with talking to you about this rather than all of the like boring business stuff is because you're obviously like so enthusiastic and excited about this. And we all love games here. So, you know, and if 
most of the people that listen to this podcast are and probably going to be as well. Um, but for me, I, I get into a game, you know, like I, I, I love gaming, but I get in, I like when I really get into one, it's like once every like five to 10 years. <laughs> and recently I've been playing a lot of divinity, uh, divinity too. So like, and, and my awareness of like other things is like very limited. So everything that you're saying is sort of like filtered through this like fabric of divinity, original sin. <laughs> so I'm like, Hmm, what would that be like? And is, is he, is it, like this and or is it like that so there's a few things in case anybody like me is listening there's a few things that you've talked about that we could clarify you you said rogue roguelite is that what you were saying yeah so the idea being that because there was a game originally called rogue um where when you would perish you would you would basically start over um roguelites are there's roguelikes which are games that are like that and then roguelites which tend to feature more permanent progression and that's more what i'm looking at so the idea is when your character play you play your character let's say you pick a i don't know, like a warrior or whatever and each character has a mini tech tree it doesn't go super high so there's three different areas on that tech tree of specializations which means as you level up gain experience play the game you can customize this character's abilities and and passives to suit your personal play style or equipment you've found. Um, pretty pretty common practice. But when that character dies, that progression and that character is gone. But it will have affected the world. And there are certain things you will have unlocked or put progression into, or if you went back to the guild and poured money into or what have you, that will be permanent. Meaning the next time you play a character or choose a character, that character benefits from those and moving forward that could be an increased pool of characters or better stats or etc so on that could show up things that affect the world in this case is um like if you are playing the warrior and your warrior dies you as the next character might come across that warrior's corpse or that warrior's zombified form or that warrior's ghost pretty common practice but one of the things that we try to push and by we i mean me <laughs> in this project is a little bit more interesting systems. So for example, if you were collecting a lot of mushrooms, the more mushrooms you have in your pack when you die, the more likely it is if you come across where that corpse had perished, there would now be a whole colony of mushrooms in that area. Um, and if there were other mushrooms, maybe they hybridized with those mushrooms and created a new type of mushroom, depending on stuff like that. Um, if you were carrying a legendary sword, um, then perhaps when you died, you know, the corpse may be there. It may not there if, if, uh, so a random amount of time passes when you lose a character to when you choose your next. So you might actually just come across like a coroner's bag, which is part of that modern thing coming in. So instead of like a coffin or a, or a headstone or anything, it's a modern coroner's bag, which you can open like a chest, by the way, at your own peril. Um, that legendary sword might be there. It might be gone. Um, it might be broken, but one of the possibilities is if you were in an area that had a certain amount of, say, goblins, let's just go with generic goblins for the sake of, a goblin might have found that sword and then is now leading an army as, like, king of that group of the goblins using that sword that you had because it imbued that goblin with all the abilities of that sword. And now if you want it back, you've got to fight that guy and his army to get the sword that your previous character had. Um, 
one of the better examples of like kind of silly ideas that I, I want, which goes into the exploration category would be like, if you were carrying an item, let's say it's peanut butter, right? You've got a jar of peanut butter on your character and you're fighting a bunch of monsters and you die. And one of those monsters happened to be like a slime. Uh, you could come back and then that room might have a slime that you hadn't encountered before, which is a peanut butter jelly, <laughs> but um bum. But it's cute, fun ideas like that, that then that new monster might yield a new type of drop that you wouldn't have gotten before. And very few circumstances lead to that. There's a risk with that kind of design, meaning a bulk of your players may not encounter it, but also there's a reward that if you do, it's unique, it's interesting, it's fun, and it works in many layers. And also people tend to then tell people about this and then they try to reverse engineer how did this happen. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. But that kind of discovery goes in with that experience that plays off of the roguelite experience to bring this back to what we were talking about where when you die and there's permanence to your death, that also permanently affects the area around you. So death becomes, yeah, it can suck, but it also becomes interesting and part of the fun play experience. Because one of the things I don't like about a lot of like roguish games is when you die, you permanently lose everything and it just feels bad if you didn't accomplish what you sent out to do. What I'm trying to do is curb that experience so that you might feel a little bad, but now you're like, oh, what's what's going to happen now because of that? And what new opportunities and choices do I have as a player versus just, oh, all my crap's gone and now I'm angry. So since you're going with the comedy route slightly, it sounds like uh, a little bit, I was thinking like, uh, this is me throwing out my ideas into your game, which you can <laughs> accept or reject. Um, is like having like the chalk outline of the person if you revisit the room of your of the previous character died in yeah that, that's that's the kind of thing that you would come across like i said there's corner bags stuff like that i play off the modern kind of injection some of it you have to hand wave a little bit some of it there's a very solid explanation for um it goes very dark and it goes kind of comedic but it doesn't go heavy into like pop culture that's the one thing i kind of avoid like um because pop culture can date an experience, whereas timeless things like a corner bag, people either know what it is or it isn't, but generally you know you know what a corner bag is, a, a gravestone, a chalk outline, et cetera, so on. Things you might never encounter in real life, but they're a staple of, of different societies, so you can inject that into your game. That's definitely the approach. So, you know, there, it's, there's, there's blood, there's guts, there's dark, you know, evil. You know, the story itself is actually pretty dark, um, but it's it's kind of rounded out by those interesting and also, like you said, comedic experiences to kind of create a good cohesive whole very much in the style of something I would make. Because when I make things, I tend to hybridize them. It doesn't tend to just be like, oh, just fantasy or just futuristic. There tends to be a crossover. Because um, I grew up with uh, Final Fantasy, which did that a lot, where you'd be like, oh, you know, we're in a medieval we're in a medieval setting. Oh, but now we're in an engineered airship. And now we're going into the Final Fantasy version of the Tower of Babel, but it's freaking made out of computer chips and electronics and what have you. And so I, I really fell in love with that when I was younger. And so I liked that crossover. When I started this project, people were like, oh, you can't put like futuristic characters into a medieval setting. It never works. And and gave me all these examples. And I'm like, cool, but really I might as well have just had my headphones on. I'm like, I'm not listening, not really caring, because 
that's what I ran into in my jobs a lot was people just going like, oh, what a cool idea to never do. And we need to do it this way. And in a job setting that works, but you need to have a lot of agency in your own personal work, which is what this project was. Um, Cause this project was also spawned out of a, a, a kind of a spiteful moment I had in a previous work experience. <laughs> that's it's brilliant. Like so much of what you're talking about, the the one I never played Final Fantasy, but that's one of the things that like really caught my eye about your project is this mix of uh, sci-fi and fantasy, and like you know where you have like spell books strapped to people's belts, but then you also have like mag pouches on military style vests and stuff. Like that's awesome. What what is it when people are saying, "Oh, you you can't mix those two? Like why? I didn't listen too closely to their reasoning, to be honest with you, because I, I started yeah, to get fair. a little selfish to that point. But um, it was just different examples. There was some game or something, I forget what the name of it was, where they're like, yeah, it really failed in this instance. And I'm like, you're right. You know, there's obviously, you know, there's a there's a person, you know, who shouldn't have breathed at a certain moment. So we should all never breathe again. That's clearly the way to design things. Like, I don't, I don't believe in that. So really, when someone has a vision, it could be a good vision. It could be a bad vision for a project. Not like I'm seeing things in the desert kind of vision, but hey, if that works for you, sure. But um, when you get a really good art director and they they have a really strong direction for a project, if it works out, everybody says they're amazing. If it doesn't work out, they're like, oh, they're the worst art director ever. But really, that's what you're doing when you're making your own project is you're taking that kind of gamble and you have to put that kind of, you know, this is what I know I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it and it's going to come together because I can see how it's going. You're directing all your own stuff. So getting feedback from people you don't want feedback from in the duration of that can be harmful uh, more than it can be helpful. You need to know when to ask people for feedback, bounce ideas off and see how it's hitting. Certainly so you're not just in your own head, but I wasn't going to explain this for people who are curious and then just take all the feedback and be like, Oh, you're right. This isn't going to work. Let me just completely delete the whole project. Like that's a ridiculous way to design. And honestly, like I said, something that I was meeting in some of my worst jobs that I worked where people just didn't want to hear ideas. They just wanted you to execute on their one idea, which is why I'm doing this alone. Cause I don't want to do that to other people either. I have a very specific idea of what works and what wouldn't here, but I don't want to have somebody else come on as an artist and be like, oh, I want to help you on this project. I have all these ideas and I'm going like, nope, that's not the way I was going with it. And then every day they come into work and they're just like, this sucks. All I'm doing is just doing actors ideas and not my own. Because like I said, that's kind of what spawned that project really was um, I was working and we were supposed to do a modular wall set at work. and I designed a 2D solution for this. And I was like, it's pretty easy. It's pretty you know, simple to make, really easy to understand, really easy to execute within the game. We can get a lot done in very little time. And I was told, no, that was a stupid idea and I should maybe just kind of keep my mouth shut. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's you know, toxic, but sure, thanks. And um, they ended up going with a different idea. It totally didn't work. I knew it wouldn't work. Other people knew it wouldn't work, but you know, we weren't in charge. So you're like, okay, you go with it. And I kept running into these snags. So what I did at some point when I wasn't on that project anymore, I was actually between jobs at the time. It's just like, you know what, for fun, I'm just going to do some of this kind of 2D execution. And I made like a modular wall set, which was the first walls I did for this dungeon, actually. 
And I was like, yeah, that works just fine. It looks good. And I can kind of do it my own way and not worry about it. And I just started building off of it. And I don't usually stop with stuff like that if I have the time. So I was like, what if I just made more assets of this? Now I have thousands and thousands of assets for this. And uh, and the example rooms work and the characters work and I have them in perspective and the execution, like I said, is treated like a normal game would be, which means there are limitations on what you do. You can't just blue sky all the time if you're gonna actually execute on it. But that agency I was lacking came back and suddenly I was working morning to night on this because I was actually interested in it. And part of that interest came from, I knew I could affect it. And I knew that I wasn't going to get shot down every second uh, of every day when I was working on it. And this is actually, you know, something I'll talk about later in regards to working with a team in, in the game industry or any industry really um, is having to balance that out and understand what leadership means and what, you know, teammates should and shouldn't probably be prepping to contribute because uh, you can do anything on your own. You can't do anything all the time in a, in a team setting, but you need that balance. So I just started running with it and uh, I really liked where it went. And at this point, I'm like, yeah, if I was told, oh, you can do nothing but work on this project for the next five years or whatever, I'd be like, if I making money and sustaining myself, I could totally do that. And I'd be really, really happy with the result. Uh, but you know, that was just, that was, like I said, born kind of out of spite, not a really good place to do it, but I turned that kind of dissatisfaction into creativity. So I think that's a plus. When you hear about games coming out and they, the, the development can go on for years. <laughs> and this is when there's, you know, a large team of people working on a game. Um, and then you're one person doing the majority of this. I I hesitate to say, you know, I was kind of kidding before. Well, when do we get to play it? But I, I'm also thinking of like, well, how do I tactfully ask how, what's your ETA? <laughs> because I'm sure the last <laughs> the last thing that you want is like, you know, pressure for like, oh, Right. J- Jay's taken Jay's taken forever. He's been talking about this game for a million years. So I, I don't want to go down that road. But I, no, I guess I guess what I'm what I'm wanting to know is like how do you map out the uh, the process? And do you like do you have like um, uh, landmarks that you want to hit, or do you just kind of work at it just at your leisure whenever you want to? So I wanted to, what I started with was I made kits. I wanted some environment kits. Like I said, I'm treating like a vertical slice, which means you want to show kind of where it's going to flex into visually, where it's going to flex into design wise, which means I had to design a set of characters. I ended up designing all the classes, but I needed to do it like at least 10 or something to give some examples. I need to show what the UI is going to look like, show what those tech trees I talked about look like, show what the weapon range armor range, stuff like that's going to be. So I was like, okay, I need to hit certain screens, character information, you know, locational maps. I literally have pretty much anything you'd see on a status screen from load and uh, save screens to to more relevant gameplay information. Um, and I was like, okay, I need some wall sets, which I was just calling as environmental kits. You'd think of them as a biome or a certain environment. So like, this is the 
the cottage kit. This is the rundown, like underground well kit. This is so I made about five of those and then started kind of going out from there because I ended up making an exterior kit as well, like a, a forest slash, you know, fields kit with a whole bunch of whole bunch of foliage and trees for that because i i just was looking at what i wanted and when i would hit a kit i'd kind of hit it all at once so that i wasn't skipping around too much because i didn't want it to feel arbitrary i wanted to make sure i had a good rounded amount of stuff so what i do is i'd hit all the walls and angles and and things i thought i immediately needed the lowest hanging fruit idea wise and then i'd start building on it more to go i may not use this in the vertical slice but it's a library i have so i can also show as part of this these are the kit directions so if i were to build off this you can see where it's going and you can get a a good idea like i could hand it off to somebody who really understood the project and they'd be able to go oh i could make a whole bunch of assets for this in two weeks you know because i can see where you're going with it um the idea is i need to not just design the project but design it in a way that i can convey visually um the theme and the idea of what i'm going for so i was doing it in sections like i did the designs of the characters all at once um environment kits mostly that first part all at once um, then i started putting the screens together all at once so there was a good cohesion to this doing a lot of the ui all at once so it felt like it was from the same game and that meant figuring out what that was going to be it ended up being a lot of like solid block lettering since i was painting and handcrafting everything i didn't want to like have it be like oh the ui is chiseled out of wood and stuff because it's just going to fall back so you know characters a little more cartoony environments very very painted um ui more modern and kind of block lettered and very you know design friendly um and that brings a bit of that modern in with that medieval and so you get it as a whole and not just in oh the visual over here or the visual over there but sectioning it out is how i would kind of hit it um if i were working with a team so i did that solo and i think that that's good but really what you need to find out if you're ever going to do a project like this is how you work best and then fit that into what your time goals and plans are because it, it that wouldn't necessarily work for everybody some people bouncing around would be what keeps them engaged but you still have to like you said, have a time frame. So when will this kit be done by? When will these characters be done by? You know, even if you're working with yourself, it helps to have some kind of idea of a schedule. And I'm using an idea of a schedule because my goal on this was not to give myself timelines because I don't owe it to anybody. But that doesn't mean that I sat around and did nothing. I, I kind of instinctively am like, well, I want to get this done and I want to have this to show and I want to have this figured out. Um, so that's that's kind of fast and loose on my end um but if i were if i were moving towards execution and not just vertical slice right now there would be a timetable for sure um and you know what needs to get hit what might be on the cutting board you know if if we can't quite get to it um even if i was just working on my own and i were programming the whole thing myself yeah that's what i was wondering about is that specific timeline so you're intentionally kind of steering away from the like six months goal for x and the year goal for y or whatever yep right um do you want me to link to the two twitter posts in the chat to just kind of post some visuals to go along with what we're talking about here yeah please do and um we will save them for the show notes as well um okay cool yeah while just you're while you're linking that in, um, 
another question that I had about objectives. So do you just kind of just have this just sort of like loosely in mind or I mean, do you like write out like <laughs> notes and keep yourself like organized or is it just like uh, the, re- the reason that I I'm the reason that I'm leaning so heavily on like the organization thing is just because that's it's a curiosity of mine. And I also like to, you know, like I'm curious about other people's process and the hopes that it's helpful for others as well to like come up with. Well, I I have this idea for a, a big project and I don't even know where to start, you know, and what are some process for that? So for me, I write things out. Um, I'll even keep loose notes. Like I'll just open Notepad and I'm like, oh, I have some thematic ideas or certain titles I, I want to explore later, like a chapter title or something like that. And I'll write them down. And once I have enough there, um, I'll compile them. And so I actually have a I have a physical notebook. I did a lot of the UI work in and a lot of the ideation and writing down the, the themes once I figured them out. And then I start to organize it uh, on the computer usually after that. So section everything out, you know, here's where the story is going to go. Make sure that I'm not just uh, going like, oh, I have an idea for a story. Like when someone's like, oh, I'm going to do a comic. And what they mean is like they have an idea of what one of the panels would look like and they know it's going to have like a buff dude in it. And that's all they know. I I can't work that way. I need to actually know what it meant. So when I said this game's going to have a story, I needed to understand what that story was and what my intention was, how it was going to start, how it was going to end and at least some points in the middle that I could use as, you know, launching points for for shifts in tone of the game as you move forward. Um, so yeah, I get pretty organized about it. Um, and sometimes I work better in a notebook than I do typing on a computer. So I bounce between the two, depending on what it is. Like if I wanna figure out UI, I, I draw it on traditional, honestly, before I do it digitally, because it just flows the ideas a little bit easier for me. But I I hit the main points of design and theme really, really early. I needed to know what the visual theme was going to be, what the gameplay theme. So for gameplay theme, um, it was started with exploration, progression, and story were the, the main pillars of the design. I wanted that experience, like I said, to be a progressive and exploration-based experience, not a gameplay loop where you're like, oh, you do these things and then you do the same things just with different colored walls 20 times. Like that's not very interesting. Um, and then visually, I knew I wanted it to look kind of like a loose loose painter style r- rather than overly refined for two reasons. One, visually it looked nice and played off simplified, more cartoony characters. But two, it meant that I could execute on it a lot faster because I wasn't sitting there trying to make sure the edge of every brick was refined. So I got more color into the environments and painted it more loosely. And that actually resonates with people better anyways. So it just kind of cross-solved. Um, with the UI, once I figured out, like I said, the UI was going to be more modern and blocky, I had to figure out what that actually meant, um, played with that out, got some notes. So really, it was just boiling each approach down to its its basis parts. So I could, if I were saying, like talking to you now, I could mention what some of those would be, and I could understand them and execute on those. And so I have little organized sections for environment kits, story kits, character kits, et cetera, so on. That organization helps me also feel like I'm making progress, which is a big thing when you're working on a project and you're doing a lot of work on a project is allowing yourself to see that you've done work on it. And it's not just, oh, I feel like I'm not doing anything because 
if I do an environment kit, I did one with like rocks and it, I was like, oh, I need like a hundred something different rocks. Like once I'm doing 50 rocks and then I've got 70 rocks, it feels like I've done two rocks. Like it, it doesn't visually really start to stack up until you've done like an additional hundred or something. It's just, it's just a lot of rocks. But then when you're putting kits together and if you're using like a varied brush, like you're like, oh, I'm going to make a brush that puts down a, a group of different rocks depending and it pulls from that pool. You're going to realize, you know, 50 rocks is not a lot of rocks for an entire game or an entire area kit. So, because this isn't in 3D, it's all 2D. So what you see is what you get. You can size things, you can flip things, and you can adjust the value or hue on things. But if you make a rock that's a big cube, it's always going to be a cube. You know, it's not going to be like you can turn it and shove it in the ground like you can in the in a 3D game. So having that organization and going, okay, I've made a lot of progress with this really helped make it easier you know and if you're like oh i did the door set i made 10 different doors and they've all got you know open and closed states and they're angled in the different directions and then i would have damaged states version so that would be doubled um then i can be like well that's done and that's a huge chunk that i finished and i file that away mark it off in my notes move next and then i start having all these sections that fill up with stuff and these lists that start getting crossed off and it just feels really nice because i'm like oh that's my that's my dessert not only do i have the cool thing but i get to see like this pile of things i've finished that i don't have to think about anymore and uh not doing that and just kind of head downing and just doing the stuff without organization and without marking stuff off and without seeing that progress really just doesn't feel as satisfying to me and it can cause a lot of lethargy as you move forward in a project i think yeah especially when you're painting 100 rocks like that uh it could be cumbersome like i'm thinking about a, a world that you're building and all of the little things that you're going to have to you know that you're going to want to put into this world um I've watched you work on it a, a little bit and all of the little things that you have, it's, it's amazing. Do you ever get like, Oh God, I can't, can't fucking paint any more rocks, but you still have to paint like the three different versions of the damaged rock in the one scene. And this is one scene amongst 10 scenes. Like, man, <laughs> no, no, never. I'm superhuman. I could just do it forever. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I usually if that happened like with the rock set I bounced that was one of the times I bounced between it I'd be like I've got to sit down I'm going to do 10 rocks and I'm going to look at the rocks I'm going to try and make them you know different in the areas I need to fill and then I'd stop and be like okay now I'm back on the new wall set or something different or I'll go to characters because uh, it'll just start to it just looks like it's all the same rock even if you change it after you've done too many so I just bounced back and forth um, I had to do that for like trash piles too like I'd be sitting there and I'm like, okay, some of these trash piles can't have new modern stuff. The other ones can literally be a plastic trash bag full of stuff. But if you do trash piles long enough and you're sitting there, you'll be like, what the hell else can I put in a trash pile? I've done it all. But if you you know, put a day between you and that, or or at least even a couple hours, you'll come back and you're like, oh, of course, you know, all these other things. You just, you get that little mini burnout and so, you know, like I said, that goes back to finding how you work personally. For me, bouncing back and forth when I'm going to be doing a lot of iterations on the same thing helps. Um, but also when I work, it's like I don't want to work with 20 million piles of reference either. 
um, on this project because then my progressions start to just literally become the reference I'm looking at and I don't want that. So like when I was looking at trash piles, I might like, oh, look up like, you know, dumpster or something and look at it for a little bit and then put it away and be like, okay, now I'm going to execute based off those ideas, but then my own ideas on top of it, which will bring it back into that project. Otherwise, I'll just literally be painting the trash bag I'm looking at eventually because I'm like, man, this is kind of getting boring. So, you know, I, I kind of put myself under heavier gravity by doing that, but I think the result for me personally works out better and my iterations become more useful because of that too. Because I'm also not just looking at reference at the point, I'm really looking at the project itself and be like, what problems need to be solved still? What spaces need to be filled that I haven't done yet? But then again, I'm also the kind of person who is like, I'm going to make a modular root system for, for all these trees and vines, and it's really fun. And I actually had a blast doing that. And I explained it to a buddy of mine, and he made one comment. And his one comment was, why the hell would you do this if you're not getting paid? This is stupid. And I was like, well, that's the difference between you and me. So grain of salt with anything I say as far as this, it may or may not apply to you. <laughs> No, I, I, I think that's worth lingering on for a moment, actually. It, because if, I, if for no other reason, I'm sure that there's plenty of things that that person is into that you would be like, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, so it's always like surprising to me, like when people are like, so, I don't know, kind of taken aback by the amount of time that you want to put into something where it's like, well, you're at least familiar with the idea of feeling passionate about something, you know, that like maybe nobody else would understand, but you're into it. Like you can at least like understand that concept. Right. So just apply that to this. And if you're not familiar with that concept, well, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a, I think it was a situation where the person I was talking to everything they do is for money. Like everything is like, if they do anything, it's, it's gotta be something they can also sell. And I was actually doing this purposely to move away from that a little bit. And so there was a big disconnect there where I'm just like, yeah, I'm doing this for fun because I really enjoy this and it clears my head and it feels good in a way that my work for money never has. And I was trying from the, the idea that as soon as you say you're going to sell something, that dictates at least a part of what you're going to do, even if it's just subconscious. You're like, oh, I'm going to paint a green shirt today. And you're like, well, people would probably like this green shirt if I put a little bit more teal in it or something like that. You know, it, it's going to alter it in some way because you're going to know people will like this green shirt better if you do A versus B or C. Whereas with this project, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm just going like, what would I want to make? What would I want to see? What would I want to play? Regardless of monetary value or, or expectation for, for any of it. So that, that person I was talking to was just like, there is no point in spending time on it if you're not making profit from it. And I was like, profit has ruined a lot of the stuff I've touched. I need to move away from it for a while and not be tied to that. Sometimes I just want to draw a picture because I love it and I'm never going to sell it on purpose. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm lucky enough that I don't need to rely on a Patreon right now. Um, because that would change all of my work because I'd have to start doing the stuff that would keep people engaged on the Patreon and be specifically what they're looking for versus what I do now where, quite frankly, half the work I do, nobody really cares about 
too heavily because it's just not what they either come to expect in general or what engaged them with my work initially. So this project's completely divorced from that, um, but made in a way that I still think that if it became a full project, it would be solid and robust and interesting enough to make money. But if it didn't make money, you know, that's not something I need to worry about right now. That would be more if I were moving forward with a team and I'm like, okay, people are relying on this time they spend to translate into cash, money, ducats, dollar, dollar bills, y'all. You know? So not to push the issue or force the issue of making money off of this project. <laughs> um, I'm wondering though, at the point when it becomes a fully realized project, uh, what would what would you do with it? Um, in what way? Like, uh, well, as you're far as development. Well, I guess you you know you're from what you're saying. I would gather that you don't have the inclination to at some point sell it to a larger company, or you, like you don't have the end goal of publishing and distribution and marketing and blah 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 all that. But you want to make it a fully realized game, right? Uh, to some degree, I, I waffle on that, to be honest. There's days where I'm like, ah, I'm probably never going to fully finish this thing, which actually upsets two of my friends very heavily because they're very invested in it. And they're like, it upsets you, me. <laughs> you need to make it. But then other days I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course I could. You know what I mean? Why? Why not? And uh, the reality of it is, if it were to come to full playable fruition, it would need a team. Um, which brings money into the equation, which brings scheduling and hard, fast, you know, decisions. Um, I'm not uh, against that completely, uh, but it would need to be a certain situation that suited my my immediate lifestyle, which is that I'm I'm still doing something that I want when I'm outside of my job, because that would be a full time job outside of my full time job. You know what I mean? I I work in games right now. Um, I'm full time with Blizzard. And then this is a full-time thing. And then where does the conflict of interest lie, right? Because realistically, um, legally, this is fine. Um, when I was hired in, I signed all you know the legal documents and gave evidence and whatnot that I was working on this long before I worked at Blizzard and that this isn't their property to own and it's still mine and, and all of that. And that's good and fine. But it's very different when you're like, I'm going to indie dev at the same time that I'm working, you know, a, a very senior position at a gaming company work who, who also makes dungeon crawlers, you know what I mean? Like that would probably be a choice. I I'd probably have to go, well, I'm going to leave blizzard for a while at least, you know, and assume that they're, they would take me back after I were done if this went, you know, pear shaped. So there, there's some weird things, but on the, on the idea of selling it, that would be something, I would be open to, but I just don't see that happening. Like, I don't think anyone's going to go, wow, we're really interested in purchasing this, purchasing this material. Let's be honest. What's more likely to happen is somebody's going to go, wow, we're really interested in ripping off and copying this material, um, which is unfortunate, but that's kind of how the industry works. And a lot of indie games are ripoffs of other games or game ideas they saw elsewhere. Not everybody's on the up and up and that happens. I would hope that wouldn't happen, but I'm also being semi-public about what I'm doing. And that's just the risk. But 
I also kind of do the project in hopes that it'll help other people. Um, I'm very transparent about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and why I'm doing it and what applies here versus actual game dev that you would do at a AAA level as well as an indie level. Since I've worked indie, AA, AAA, and kind of in between as well as mobile games, I have a weird pool of experience that I apply here. So it's also like a cool learning tool for other people. Um, and I've been asked like, oh, are you going to just sell your wall sets on like an RPG site so people could make their own dungeons out of them? And it's like, yeah, 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 I don't know. But um, if a company, as a thought exercise, if a company were to come by and they're like, we have money and an interest in this project and we'd like you to be attached to the project, but we're going to kind of develop it, which means we want input because they're going to want input if they're making it. Um, it would have to be a very specific situation in which I'd go like, yeah, that sounds great because I know they're going to take what I did and they're going to gut it a lot and make it a very different thing. So then I'm going to honestly be looking at like, is the money good? <laughs> and and can I still say like, well, these were my ideas versus these are the, the product that came out? Um, because beyond that, it just becomes a new thing. And is that evolution a butterfly or is it just an uglier caterpillar? You know? <laughs> Well, I am loving this conversation because this podcast being focused on business and marketing and whatnot, you know, we, that the, the profit motive is implicit in a lot of that. So it's something that we talk a lot about, but this idea of working on something for its own sake, I think is incredibly important and worth more discussion because it facilitates so much of the other stuff that we do talk about more often. Uh, you know, just like what you've been saying that this helps you in so many ways, uh, you, you learn from it. It keeps your creativity fresh. It is an outlet for you, like all of these things. And, you know, and this idea that there doesn't have to be a profit motive attached to it allows it to be this, this, this purely creative experience, I think is, you know, speaks to the importance of personal projects. Um, it makes me curious though, for you, this is a very subjective question, I guess. <laughs> well, it is not, I guess. Um, what makes a good game? Uh, man, that's, that's a different question. Just depending on so many factors, uh, like, uh, let me, let me ask then like what makes a good game to make or a good game to play or both or or where are you coming from on this one well uh not to uh duck out on my own question but i'll just say yes <laughs> both <laughs> all of all of the above wax philosophical about your ideas of making a good game or playing a good game okay uh, i before I talk about that, obviously this is this is very subjective, like you said. So this is just my personal ideas, and not me saying this is absolutely what makes a good game. Um, first of all, I personally think that what makes a good game to play versus a game to work on it can be very very different because some of the best games I've played were probably hell and back to work on. Um, I would say a prominent game that I thought was pretty good was like The Witcher Three. That's something that that went around and became like a, a phenomenon worldwide i guess you could say you know where oh you're 
your activities and choices can kind of affect things. There's an interesting character. It's based off source material, but they're doing their own thing. The world's fully realized and there's a lot of it and there's like a whole bunch going on moving parts, but development on that game was very, very hellish. So while I enjoyed playing that game, that game was built on the blood, sweat and tears of many, many people who once they finished working on that game went to other companies for a reason. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the development for what people would go like is a really good game is a very different discussion than what just is a great game. I think um, a good game to play changes depending on who plays it just because obviously their taste but to me it, it fulfills its own purpose solidly throughout it doesn't just kind of fall off that wagon or or go into what i like to call like the the kind of mobile effect where you're just like oh i have a cool idea for like a 10 minute game but let's make a game that doesn't respect your time and just does that over and over and over and over again and it's supposed to be addicting for some reason other than gameplay like um you know skinner box type stuff um, so I don't really count those as like good games. They're good money makers. People will call them games. Realistically, it's, it's the same kind of engagement you would get at like sitting at a slot machine sometimes though, where it's really the, the carrot that's on the stick. That's more interesting than the, the activity you're doing. So for me, like a game that I really like is super Mario world for the super Nintendo or the super Famicom, depending on where you were, when you were. Um, which is just a simple platformer, very basic ideas. You jump, you can hit things, you can stomp on things. And if they have spikes, you probably can't stomp on them or hit them. Um, you get coins, you get enough coins, you get an extra guy. There's a few power-ups, one that can make you fly, um, and a little dinosaur buddy you can ride. Very simple ideas. You tend to go left to right, sometimes right to left, sometimes up and down. But it's just at its heart a platformer where you run and jump. And... Uh, Every level in that game, not every, but almost every level, introduces either a new visual or a new mechanic. And uh, and there's a lot of levels in that game. And some of them are optional. And it's colorful. It's fun. It's true to itself from design bottom to design top. And in that simplicity and understanding what it wanted to be, it created a very well-crafted experience that if you like it, it's it's joy comes in the replayability where you can do the same level again and again and still just have fun because it is inherently a fun experience. Um, and the fact that levels are optional and they put secrets where certain levels will be marked um, a different color than they normally would be on the world map and you'd go, oh, there's an extra exit there. It might lead to something. It just added this extra level of agency to the player to something that doesn't need it, which is just a platformer. And it just created this fun experience that you can beat in like under an hour. <laughs> and uh, and I play it at least once a year, every year, um, and introduce it to friends who haven't played it. And it's just a joyful, fun experience that I think is a, a good game because it didn't reach too far, but it didn't go, we're going to disrespect your time and just have you do literally the same thing over and over again. It feels like it was a game that was designed by people who were making something they themselves found fun and were sitting around going, oh, you know what would be neat is if then this did this and then they did it because they knew they knew how to make a game and they knew what fun was, so they knew how to package that in something they could execute on. So that was probably fun to make too, though I bet their timeline on it was pretty slim because that was made back, you know, when teams were very small. I think the Mario team was like 10 or less people. Um, 
I like to talk about like um, old Mega Man games for the NES, like number two and number three were made in uh, two and a half and three months respectively, I think, start to finish. So everything was made in a whirlwind in tandem. Music was being made when levels were designed and interpretations of bosses were then being turned into pixels by the people who drew the concepts for them. And, you know, people sleeping in the office, but then they finish the game and they're like, we love this game and it was really fun. Um, indie devs now will make a game that's like Mega Man 3 and it'll take two, three years to do what they did in three months. So I don't think it was a healthy pace they were doing back then. So that's why the development versus what a good game is, is it's a very different discussion. A good game to develop on, I think, to talk your ear off, I'm sorry, um, is, uh, is a game where the vision is is known. You know what your goal is but there's still wiggle room to get to that goal in a way that you feel you're able to contribute and enjoy making your contributions. Um, to give an example of what that means, I worked on a team where I had no agency. The vision wasn't mine. I wasn't allowed to contribute. I was supposed to just execute, not even in my own art style. I was supposed to be mimicking somebody else's. I was hired in under the guise of, this will be fun to work on, and we really love your work. And then I was brought on and told, your work's nice, but really you should be copying this person and just do these ideas. And anytime I brought my own ideas in, I was told, you know, don't do that. It was bad. Um, that development, I didn't care if the game was good or not anymore because I felt like I could have been anyone and it didn't matter. It took the dream of being a creative in a creative field and bashed it into like I had more creativity working bagging groceries when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like I got to choose where the groceries went in the bag. And if I did it right, people were happy or maybe they still yelled at you. You never knew. Um, but every day was the same um and the pay was bad and the position was bad and it was garbage um so you know part of what makes a good game to work on isn't just the project you're doing but also the people you work with and how you work and that's i could talk five hours about just that just that and what that means and how that can go right and how it can go wrong and how also my experiences with that are so minimal compared to the the broad spectrum of experiences anyone could have. That's why, like, when people discuss game development online on social media, um, it's a it's an interesting discussion because a lot of people don't discuss it. They just say, oh, this is how the industry is. And the industry changes depending on what company you're talking about, who you're talking about, what their station is, what the project was, et cetera, so on. So there is no absolute. There's just what's the general direction it's going in. Um, but that's a completely different tangent. I think that what makes a good game is something that's that's just made to be enjoyed and doesn't have a secondary idea of how to get more and more money from you. Like I don't think it's it's got so much DLC that you're buying the game 40 times over because that seems like it's not meant to be enjoyed. It's just meant to make money. Games are an industry. They're meant to make money. But I think good games solid games can ride just what their normal price tag is um that's an opinion not everybody agrees but it's an easy opinion to have right now as the market is saturated with like i said skinner box games and and like i played destiny 2 but dude they're selling emotes for 15 dollars for an emote like the game <laughs> You buy four emotes and you've bought the whole damn game again. And I like, you know, I like that dance, but 15 
bucks like this is oh if you want to enjoy everything in this game oh you could get it as a drop sure over the course of a year you might get one thing you want um it's just becoming are you rich then you can enjoy the game are you not rich then well you get the base idea of a game and i don't think that that's a good way to go i still play the game because i'm a sucker but um but I don't like it and it doesn't feel good. And every time I play it, I'm closer to going, you know what? I'm really supporting a system I don't believe in and maybe I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> We're on the uh, Destiny 2 team, then you would uh, still be saying these thoughts internally, but you probably wouldn't be voicing them externally, right? Uh, if I was on the team I'd, and I was voicing these thoughts on the team, for all I know, they wouldn't have me on the team. I don't know because um, I'm, not, I'm not friends with anybody who works on that team. Uh, over over in Bungie Land, but um, I I don't know what those internal discussions are like. On a lot of teams I have worked on, you'll get situations where the monetization of your game is different than what the team believes in, but it's not it's not their arena to determine, right? Like that's going to be finance, and you're not working finance; you're working creative. So you know, like I I get a say in in things currently where I work, but you know that only goes so far. Right. I imagine with Destiny, I can't I can't imagine everybody who works on Destiny is like, yeah, we really want to like nickel and dime people to death. You know what I mean? That 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 doesn't feel right. But I imagine too, like speaking externally about it, like you said, there's a danger there. You 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 do have to represent the company to an extent. But I don't know what Bungie's terms are as far as that goes. I know with Blizzard, there's certain things I'm not gonna talk about uh, for multiple reasons but i certainly shouldn't talk about as well because those are you start to get into where you're you're kind of leaking internal information and it's just <laughs> not what you should be doing but i can tell you in general that that kind of approach i don't i don't prefer it i i love that comment that you make where it's like i i'm a sucker i i keep playing it i and i don't enjoy it and it sucks but i just i keep going back <laughs> Um, I'm not laughing at you. I'm hopefully laughing with you. The crying the, with me. The five-hour conversation that, or that you, the five-hour rant that you could have about that craft. That'll be your third appearance on the podcast. By the way, count on it. I also, I'll do it. <laughs> I also want to make a note that I've had a vision for a game called Grocery Bagger, where the whole objective is to properly place things into people's bags so that they don't fall out on the way to the car. I think this is a million dollar idea that somebody, I, I, I give this freely to the world. Um, part of the awkwardness of that question, what makes a good game is sort of like comes from my own, like lack of understanding of um, what's fun. Like I know when I'm having fun, I guess, but this idea of making something that is fun for other people is fascinating. Like I, I understand that, you know, everything is something, everything that's difficult. What am I trying to say? There's practice for everything. And I'm sure that that's something that you could practice getting better at. But for me, it might as well be Mandarin. Like the idea of coming up with a fun game is just like, I, I'm, oh, man. I'm so in, I'm inspired just by the idea of it, you know, and watching somebody create something that look and talk about something that seems like, oh, that would be so much fun to be able to play like the game that you're talking about. 
is just I, I don't I've had ideas for games or ideas that I thought could be games but then when it comes to the actual like all right well how do you gamify it you know like how do you like make this something that people are gonna want to participate in I don't I don't even know it's it's hard and it's a moving goalpost like almost every second of the day to be honest um and that's why that's why feedback in that arena it's it's like feedback for art or anything like you know it's not going to resonate with everybody so then somebody goes on a forum and says game a sucks and then some people qualify that statement some people don't and then yet you see it's like a best-selling game across the world and it's super successful and you're like well somebody's liking it but not these people does their feedback matter yeah to a degree but to a degree also when somebody's making something they can't listen to all that feedback or it becomes a million chef in the kitchen kind of situation and then it it breaks down so it's really just I feel like a lot of the best games are made by people who at least enjoy the game they're making so they understand what they enjoy and push so hard in that direction that then other people can enjoy it too um either feel that way or on the fringe of of that kind of interest so like when i'm talking about my dungeon crawler and i'm i'm presenting these ideas it's easy to tell you like simple ideas that might resonate but when they compile into an overall idea and you're like well that still sounds like that might be fun to spend time with that's a great sign because it doesn't always happen but it's only born of the fact that those ideas together sounds like a great time to me um, and it is hard to work on something and be part of it constantly and still go like that would be fun for me to spend time with because you already spent all your time with it while you were making it. But, um, you know, it it's a great way to make a game if you can. Um, like I was saying, um, when people come up with um, internal expansions for Hearthstone, it really is out of just excited conversations of what are we excited about and collectively can we all kind of or most of us get on board with this idea. And if the answer is yes, then boom, we got ourselves an expansion. That's where we're going with it. Um, and it's hard to do that in a team. It's hard to do that alone and be excited about what you're working on. Then, like you said, the mystified situation comes of how do you get everyone else in the world to be excited about your thing, especially when it's considered cooler to be jaded and say how lame something is the moment you hear about it than to admit you might Oh no, incidentally enjoy something. You know, nobody nobody wants to be like, oh, I'm just having a good time. Everybody wants to be the smartest person in the social media room, you know, where they're criticizing everything and just like, oh, well, yeah, that, I guess that's a good idea if blah, 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 blah. It's hard. Um, and that comes back to game devs too. And a lot of burnout will come from just the fact that people don't want to appreciate games. And you've got game journalists like saying how stupid everything is and how, how, you know, this game could have been this, if only that, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, people forget that the same people who are making games now are the people who were playing games before and still are. You know, it's the, the difference between a dev and a person who's playing a game and, and has critiques to make it is that most of the time, the devs understood which critiques matter, how and when to apply it, and how to create these things in a way that they could then translate it into fun for other people. Um, like I've, I've worked with somebody who went into game dev and they treated game dev as a person sitting on like a 
a gaming website would in the comments where they're just like armchair designing and they're like, well, I've got so many ideas. I don't know why they didn't try these, but they didn't know what went into it. And they were fired a month later as people realized they had fluffed their resume and didn't know what they were talking about and just somehow passed their test. Um, it's a difficult thing to go create fun and whimsy or whatever um, while you're clocking in every day and your financial, you know, well-being is linked to it and also if people just happen to not enjoy this entertainment you're making you're probably out of a job and uh and also you get to post a resume where people look at it and they're like oh you worked on that Ooh, i'm sorry bro that's unfortunate you know um i a majority of the games i worked on were failures and nobody likes to talk about that because you know you want to be proud it's like like posting pictures online right you only post the ones that you like or whatever and then don't show in progress they might know you're a human being you know oh, oh you messed up on a picture never talk about that because you've got to be perfect and and people feel that way in game dev too like it's like you're finally made in game dev now you get to be untouchable but I, I take it from the approach that it's better to just show how human everything is so people realize that, you know, it's not as cut and dry as people think it is. Like, oh, the devs, you know, they should know everything perfect and they should have blah, blah, blah. It's a huge undertaking to do a AAA game. You've got so many moving parts. Many, many people won't agree on what's being done, but the decisions have to be made. Excuse me. Pressure from inside, pressure from outside. You know, investors, management, producers, um, and publishers, and all of that. So then, it's a miracle that games get made and are fun at all half the time. Um, I think this is why so many new studios are popping up. You've got a lot of indie studios. You've got a lot of people going like, "Well, we're going to make games the way we thought they always should be made." It's a cycle. And uh, a lot of the times what will happen is those companies, they will make games the way that they should have been made. They'll get successful. They'll have to ramp up. They'll start relying on investors, maybe. And if they don't, good on them because, you know, actually owning yourself. But as they start making bigger projects and needing bigger teams, they will become the new iteration of the thing that they left. And then people will leave those and go, well, I'm going to go make games the way they're supposed to be made with a small team who cares about the people and the games. And it's like, you know, you can't have huge business without repeating that cycle um it's unfortunate and i think it's getting better but the result is still when the games hit people on their consoles or their pc is it fun is it not like you're talking about larian studios uh divinity original sin original sin one and two are both magnificent games really good experiences i feel like without trying to make a dungeons and dragons game those games got pretty close to feeling like you're playing a Dungeons and Dragons video game as opposed to um, tabletop game. They they let you do a lot. They let you experiment a lot. And there's a lot of wiggle room in there and and fun little stories and and what have you. You can play it alone. You can play it with other people. I played uh, played with Cammy and we stole pretty much everything in the game. And uh, and I think that that had to come out of a love of that game. You know what I mean? They had to really love that material. And they did if you see the team, but that team worked in a very interesting and unique way. But now they're on a licensed IP. The team is bigger, things are coming out, and the criticism now against them is much, much greater than it was before. And now people are like, oh, yeah, well, they aren't going to be able to handle that IP. Or, oh, they're just doing more of the same. Or, oh, it's this. And none of that was there before, before people were hopeful. You really kind of get one successful game before everybody turns on you. <laughs> um, and that happened with uh, with um, CD Projekt Red. 
with um, so Witcher one was pretty popular. Witcher two was pretty popular. Witcher three became a mainstream mainstream major success. Then they wanted to do cyberpunk, a different licensed IP. They had some very lofty expectations that they put out there. They were never going to hit all of them, but they they given enough time could have hit a lot of them. They didn't. Um, and so whether the game is good depends on who you ask. The main thing I will say for the uninitiated is they said that you would really be able to affect a lot of the storyline and have a lot of branching paths, and you just generally don't. Um, you do at the very beginning, and you do at the very end, and that's it. Um, but they created and finished a game. They got it out there with a lot of pressure from investors and publisher and stuff like that. And that game could have, like I was saying to, to you before, Moose, it could have cured cancer, right? And, 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 and people still would have hated it because they were too successful now. And the, the kind of gaming zeitgeist now turns on anybody who is really successful because they're like, oh, now you're the big, you know, oh, people expect that you're going to make good things. You're not that good. And they just eat them alive. Um, it happens to all the big name studios. So it feels like half the time when people are going to indie studios, they're, they're trying to run from all of that. They're trying to run from big business, but they're also trying to run from these expectations of fans who have decided that nothing is good enough. Now, um, you'll never, you know, and then, and the same people who decide nothing is good enough, then complain that they're not getting anything from these people anymore when they stop making that stuff. Cause they're sick of hearing people's books now. <laughs> So it's it's a it's a tough thing to get in. You're a kid, right? Pretend you're a kid. We're all kids at heart. Right? And you're like, man, I love video games. I want to make these video games. Maybe you want to program. Maybe you want to do music for them or whatever. And you're like, I want to be creative. I want to design this game. By the time you make it in the industry, it takes a lot to still remain any part of that person who wanted to make games for those reasons. And not just become a person who's like, it's a paycheck, dude. I just need to get paid. I've got a mortgage. If you're lucky, I don't even own a house. Um, if I didn't live in Southern California, I'd own like three houses. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, like it, it puts you through the ringer on so many sides. It's amazing, like I said, that we can even talk about what makes a good game. And as opposed to remember when people bothered to make games and thought that was worth their time and effort and stress? So there you go. So um, there's a lot I want to touch on there, but I think I'm going to start with um, for people that do want to get into games. Uh, I can think of off the top of my head, uh, Sam Peterson. He has never made a game before, but he wants to try. He wants to try making like something with a with um, some turn-based combat stuff, some world exploration. Um, but he doesn't really have an idea of how much effort this is going to take. And so every time I talk to him, he's like, "I'm going to add this new thing also on top of it." I'm like, "Scope creep." So how do you actually like uh, what? words of warning or uh, even uh, on the other end encouragement or support would you offer to people that haven't had any experience with making games want to dip their toes in um in regards to just what to do or regards to scope creep because where where'd the scope creep factor in creep was because every time i talk to him he says also we're going to do another thing on top of that oh, and right. he hasn't even started doing any of it yet yeah probably don't do that too much but <laughs> but um that's the easy answer. Um, really, I think that, that just, like I said, boiling down to what you really want to get out of the experience is going to be the first thing, it, which is, okay, you want to make like a turn-based combat kind of thing. What is that going to be? And define at least loosely some type of endpoint for that. So you know what your initial scope is going to be. Uh, and, and, you know, 
a, a mistake that people make with games is the same ones they do with comics where they're like, I'm really inspired to make a comic. I'm going to make the ultimate story and the best comic anyone has ever read with a million characters and a million storylines. And then it never gets finished because it's just never good enough. And it never meets that expectation. You don't have to make like a single room video game. You know what I mean? Though I will say bubble bobble is a, a magnificent design for a video game with single screen stages. There's a lot to learn and unpack there, but um, you need to know some kind of limit that you can set for yourself to go, okay, what will I actually be able to execute on? Um, the most novice thing that I tend to see, especially with people coming into junior positions into video games is thinking like you can do literally anything and all of it, and it'll all be fine. And there will be time to do it and people to do it. Um, it won't be that way. But how do you balance against that and keep your inspiration that got you to do it in the first place, right? Make sure it's including those finest points that you are most excited about, but understand what it means to cut things. Um, people make jokes about Duke Nukem forever for a reason. Um, the, the, the guy in charge of that kept adding every new cool thing he thought he saw that, that should go in that. And that's, that's beyond scope creep. It's just impossible. When people are starting out with a game, um, there's two things I usually say. One, pay attention to what you actually want to accomplish and don't just throw the kitchen sink and everything else in there. But two, understand that there are ways games are made and you can discuss those with people like myself and other people, but don't be afraid to explore a new way to do it because... Finding what works for you is how we also discover the next big way to make something. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I use this program instead, or oh, I organized it this way, or blah, 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 blah. So while getting familiar with that, don't lock yourself into the prison of going, well, I do it this way because this is the way it is done. Like, I, I think that's dangerous. Um, and that actually kills that passion that starts that project when you when you begin. Like, um, a lot of what I'm doing with the with the the dungeon crawler I'm doing isn't the way it was done. It's the way I decided to do it. And honestly, I actually injected some of those things I learned and discovered into my work in the past two months um, at, at my job with Blizzard. Um, because I was like, oh, I figured, came across this while I was working on this and it worked out and I can just use it here too. Let's let's do it. So, you know, keeping that passion and discovery alive will, will kind of keeping the 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 scope creep down is is that balancing act that I think is most important to get a hold of when you're starting. Everything else will come with time. You know what I mean? Discovering simple things like what art style will it be in or what would be fun and what wouldn't be. But if you're adding the kitchen sink and the house and every other neighborhood into your game, you're never going to finish it. And it'll be really difficult to understand what it is. Um, having an elevator pitch, I think, is a good way to start. You know, what's a short paragraph you could tell to somebody if they're like, what's your game going to be? And you're like, oh, it's this. And just a couple sentences. Um, and if you can contain it that way, you're in a really good starting place. And you're actually doing really well because most people can't do that. Usually they're like, oh, it's a thing with uh, these aspects. But it's also, you know, um, you can shorthand by referring to other games. But it's probably better if you just have your own personal vision. Like rather than saying it's like Diablo, but you could go to say what it is versus just like, oh, it's like this other game, even if it is like the other game. So you mentioned Dwarf Fortress earlier. <laughs> is that does that stand as a counterpoint to all the things that you were just talking about? Because I 
I think they, they say now like, yeah, we're just never going to finish it. It'll just all, it be constantly under development and it's already the most complex game that was ever invented. And there sure as fuck isn't an elevator pitch for it. But is that just like, is that a once in a lifetime thing? Like you, you can't redo dwarf fortress. I don't know if it's a once in a lifetime thing. Like somebody will probably make something new because that exists, but Dwarf Fortress actually holds to kind of what I was saying, which is understanding what your game is, right? For them, it's a creative interplay of systems that defines the world and how you play. Things in that game exist like a fire starting because you have too many cats in one room and the friction starts a fire. Like they thought this would be interesting and they program it in. But it keeps scope in mind. It's one of the most complex games you'll ever play, but the scope is kept in check in that their development focuses on text and programming and not art, right? It's an ASCII game, then they put graphics in it later to make it more accessible. But that's part of that that scope. Like they they kept the scope creep in design, but they nixed the artistic side. They, every time they add an item, they don't need an icon image for it and a in-world representation of it beyond something the most simplistic that could convey that a color or a or an icon or a sizing um, or a value shift on something. So that that actually works, but they did do the exploration within that design. They didn't do it the way everything had been done before. They took like, you know, an approach that we've been doing for years since text-based games and and whatnot, but just took it to the next level. They're like, what if we just had the things you could think of could probably happen? You know what I mean? And even the least likely amount of things. But that also kept moving because they created a live game, essentially. They sell the game as it's being developed, which is, uh, I think, a really good way to do it, where it resonated with people and people play it. And then they're like, oh, they're excited about the next in you know influx of, of content and what have you. So that works really well for them. And I think it it it's special and certainly unique but i don't think it's necessarily excluded from what i was talking about it's a weird version of it because like i said if they were doing this artistically it'd be a nightmare they'd have to employ a ridiculous number of artists to just keep up with what they're going to do and it's like how do you represent half of this stuff you know what i mean um because there's so many weird tangents that game can go off of that's why if you find somebody who plays dwarf fortress and you find another person who plays dwarf fortress and you don't play Dwarf Fortress, you don't talk to those people for like three days because they're just going to talk about all the things that happened in Dwarf Fortress for the next three days, um, which is great. And that's fun and that's exciting. But like I said, that was kept in check because the art wasn't part of it. Um, and the the programming was already understood. So really, it's just a systems thing. And, uh, and it's a really strong systems thing that I really enjoy because I love systems and and trying to figure out how many things simple things can affect and you can get away with because in most games you can't do that because again you've got too much you know music and art and whatnot relying on on representing all of that so you're a vegan who does crossfit no way I'm a vegan who does crossfit <laughs> those Three words days, aren't man those words aren't ever spoken out loud because they just nod to each other's tattoos and then then they have the conversation um well i don't i don't know there's a there's a dozen other things that i want to talk about there but we're on this we're we're sort of like in this area of uh you know subjective experience and 
outlooks on things. And that might actually be a good segue to something else that we had slated, which is a, a conversation that you and Moose had had kind of like um, off stream. And Moose, you could probably, you should probably prep this. Uh, you had done a Twitter post um, that was quite lengthy in a good way. It covered a lot of great information. Um, do you want to summarize that with the assumption that you know people listening to this haven't read it? And then maybe uh, you and Jay can kind of start the conversation regarding some of the uh, the topics therein that you guys had some, um, uh, I won't say disagreements about, but different viewpoints on. I think you just summed it up while trying to tell me to sum it up. But anyway. Um, well, I mean the Twitter post itself. So it was basically a advice on a myriad of topics in regard to doing a, either freelance work or being self-employed and working for yourself independently. Um, ranging from uh, how you should charge, uh, how, how you can figure out how much you should charge, um, what, uh, what to do in order to get yourself noticed and all these things. Um, it was close to 69 posts and I stopped just short of that just so I wouldn't have a wall of people replying, nice. Um, and I, I've had thoughts that would follow up, but I, I've been holding off just so I don't have to. And if I do, I'm going to like add two more tweets just so it's around 70. Anyway. Um, so at one point, uh, Jay retweeted and I do appreciate the retweet, uh, with the quote of, uh, saying something along the lines of he agrees with, uh, most of what was said in there, or he can vouch for most of what's said in there. And I was curious, um, for, for just for discussion's sake, uh, what were the parts that he did not, uh, necessarily agree with or couldn't vouch for? Cause that's more interesting than just going through the list of all the things that he did agree with. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I believe I hit on that when it comes to people's kind of position, in uh, freelance work, it, it sometimes is very situational for me. That's why I don't give like concrete statements. Um, and so it wasn't like I really disagreed with anything specifically. It was just simply like, I can't say to someone, absolutely, if you move to this price point, you as an individual will get work if you do this. Because what we're looking at is information that we can convey to people that's useful to them that overall is way more successful than it is not successful. So like, for example, when you're like, hey, if you're going and giving an opening for commissions, you're like, I'm open for 10 slots of commissions. And in two hours, those 10 slots are filled. You may want to consider raising your prices because your price is at a point where nobody's really questioning it. And it's the demand is there. So why not even those up and make your work more worthwhile to yourself? That's an excellent thing to say, but what increment, you know, and in, in, in what way depends on the individual and what their setup for accepting commissions would be. And it suddenly becomes this other 70 posts, you know, Twitter posts to cover all your bases. And I get weird about that because I, I always feel like I have to cover all my bases because anytime I speak, then I immediately I hear the like five people going, well, actually, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? You're just, you were having a bad faith discussion. Right. And I don't, 
I appreciate that. That's why like I was saying when when people put information out like you did with your posts on Twitter, I appreciate it. And it takes a lot of guts to do it because there's going to be a lot of people who want to fight something just to sound like the smartest person in the Twitter room. And that gets old fast, but shouldn't stop people from posting things that will help other people if you genuinely want to help them. When I post things to help people, it's a little less direct and lengthy just because I'm like, I know I won't survive the fallout from this, no matter which way it goes. I just, I don't have the heart for it. I just can't do it, um, but I try. And that's why I was like, well, this is a great post and it was great to see it get traction. Um, but like I said, there's a discussion that happens in freelance that people will be like always, you know, they'll usually just put a post of like clapping hands, raise your prices. And that's like, that's cool. That's kind of like saying eat food to survive. And it's like, it doesn't, it, it's helping without really helping. Yeah, raise your prices. But what does that mean? That's why your definition of options that that could mean is very important. But um, when people come in crossover with like industry standard pay rates and what it takes to get a job, also, part of that conversation is sometimes people get hired into a junior position and they get paid less than somebody else and they don't understand why. And one of those little dirty industry secrets is sometimes they're not being lowballed. Sometimes they're just not as good as the other person. And they got hired because they wanted to be given a chance but couldn't internally justify going, we're going to pay this person 50K a year um, and we're going to pay this other person 50K a year, but one of them is clearly more experienced and better at the work they do than the other person. It's hard to tell somebody, you know, you do good work, but it's not that good yet. And we need somebody better, but we're going to help you get to that point. Because at that point, you know, you're going, well, their value financially is exactly the same. And so that conversation gets horribly complex and usually hurts somebody's feelings. And so that's why like one more reason I don't talk about it because I'm like, this needs to be talked about it, but it's better in a venue like this, like a podcast or a discussion rather than a post. Um, so I can vouch for most of it, but part of why I said I can't vouch for all of it too is simply I haven't been in those situations or I haven't worked for those companies. Um, I raised my prices multiple times when I was freelancing. And honestly, I raised them to points now where people would be like, don't charge that low. But that's because the the social climate and, and the freelance climate at that time didn't break through to where it is now. We didn't have the same opportunities and people wouldn't pay that kind of money now. Like if somebody does a big illustration of like, wow, this really well-painted character with this mountainous background and all this stuff, somebody can go, you know, $900 or $1,200 and somebody will go, sold. Whereas back then people would have been like, ha ha ha, ban this person from the internet and they wouldn't give you any work. Um, I got underpaid almost my entire freelance career. It made me a unhappy and bitter person for a long time. But seeing that that doesn't happen so often now makes me very happy to be part of that conversation of keeping it to where people can get paid more of what they're worth. Um, the the most difficult conversation is when you're talking directly with someone and they're like, well, what am I worth? And then you have to kind of go, well, that varies depending on who your customer is, <laughs> because if someone isn't good enough and they're told they're not good enough, but then they have somebody over here saying, I will pay you $500 for a thing, then guess what? They're good enough. So, you know, um, it's it's far more of a subjective conversation than I could do on Twitter. That's why, like I said, I admire your ability to just go, you know what, I'm going to post this information because it's needed um, and deal with the people who are going to be like, uh, actually, and you're like, yeah, yeah, but the information's there and it and it helps the conversation. So. 
Well, luckily, uh, most of the people that replied were positive. Um, there was a few people that were negative, and I just figured if I don't talk to them, then they'll go away, and that happened universally. So I just stuck with that. Uh, but I think that the issue is um, with prices that it is a it's a two dimensional plot, not a linear scale of how how good you are because you're not just have to be good at this art skill. You have to be good at marketing it. You have to find the audience, you have to find out what they're willing to pay and find if that's viable or not. Because if you want to uh, draw, um, I don't know, Steven Universe characters, maybe that, that market isn't willing to pay $500 for an illustration, but the D&D community is. Are you someone who's ha happy living in the D&D universe? If not, then you have to find somewhere else. And there are some artists out there who were focusing exclusively on their technical art skill and they were doing ter they were doing like amazing work, but they were doing it for terrible pay. And they were like, "Well, this is how, what I how much I got paid, so this is how much you should expect to be paid too." It was like twenty five dollars for ten hours of work. I don't think so. Um, you were doing work that was that I could find you an, an audience for to spend at least thirty dollars an hour for, if not more. And I know that because there's people that are doing work yeah. of that quality for that amount of money. Yeah, and and unfortunately, there's a lot of gatekeeping that'll happen too. Where if somebody would be like, "Well, I only got fifty for that, and I'm better than you," so like clearly you're charging too much. It's like, no, you should charge what you can reasonably get for your work. And if somebody who's better than you, which again is subjective as hell, anyways, because half the time better is determined more by the subjects they're painting than even how they're painting it or something. Anyways, like somebody, you know, oh, it's a bikini clad character. Oh, they're way better than this person who painted this whole scene. It's like, no, that they just wanted to see somebody in a bikini half the time, honestly. And uh and so you know looking at those factors, you've got to find the median. Um the more people you talk to, the more people you come across and see what their rates are is very good. You do have to do the work, like you said, marketing and collecting information to affect your marketing is a skill, just like, you know, working with a team or anything else. Doing art is is one skill, but doing art for a living is a whole bunch of skills combined. Um, and, you know, if you get good enough, you can hire people to kind of to have those other skills and do them for you. But there's a there's a lot of space between point A and point Z there. Um, so, you know, something to consider. But but yeah, like it's hard. It's hard sometimes when people are like, well, this person I idolize only makes this much. And it's like, yeah, but they're underselling themselves and they'll never say that. And other people won't say that because they don't want the secret to come out because they don't want to have to pay more for that person's work. And then you get situations where, you know, artists get away with, um, is the term you usually hear, like they're getting away with something when they're charging like 10,000 or more for a single commission that's very basic. And then people are mad and they're like, how dare they? And it's like, reasonably, yeah, that's probably a high rate for the work they're turning out. But A, somebody's paying for it. And if you could do it, you'd probably get that payment too and not say no you'd be oh i'll give you ten thousand dollars for for um a day's of work one day of work and uh and you'd go like oh no 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 please no 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 only pay me three hundred dollars not ten thousand oh please there's people who might do that i've done that not for 10 grand but i've lowered a price before just because of a different circumstance but overall if you're if you're looking to get paid and you're looking to set what your pay rates are you want to push that towards the ceiling and not towards the floor but it's scary because people know there's a point at which if they charge too much, they won't get customers. And that is based off not just their marketing skill, but also what they 
what they draw or paint and also how they draw and paint. And nobody wants to be told, yeah, you're not worth, you know, you're not worth $300, but this other person is. But sometimes that's how it feels. But then they realize, oh, it wasn't about my work or my price. It was about nobody knows that I do this artwork and there's no visibility and I haven't been putting my time in on Instagram or, you know, wherever. Or I haven't been streaming and talking about commissions on Twitch because people love seeing their commissions being worked on on Twitch, for example. You've got to find what works for you and understand that part of making that higher amount is sometimes putting a little more effort in outside of the art as well as with the art. Um, but I, I've discussed that with people one-on-one -on -one plenty of times and found solutions. Um, the broad stroke is still going to be that you've got to push that limit. And if you're starting to feel comfortable with what you're making, and like you said, your customers are coming in pretty regularly, it's probably time to just go, I need to push this up. And not by like $5. Like that, not like something that you don't. You know, if you if you play World of Warcraft and you get a drop and the weapon says it's 0.01% more damage than your previous sword, nobody's going to care. If you charge $2 more than you used to, you're not going to see a difference. It's just not going to matter. You need to do substantial amounts that, that can affect your lifestyle and make it more worth it. So you're not doing what I used to have to do, which is sitting down and going, wow, I have a pile of commissions to do. I can do them all and they'll turn out great. But at the end of the day, if I went and worked at the grocery store, I'd be more sane and make almost about the same amount of money and then i could spend my spare time doing art for me which when you're doing commissions all the time you're not getting to do so you you're buying yourself peace of mind you're buying financial security and you're also buying yourself time to do your own work why are you getting so good at art if you're just going to do it only for other people and what they want you to do you know um it's it's just a good choice to do the scary frightening thing and try and push your rates higher and try and get yourself into a position where you're making something that you feel is worth it or way more worth um, the time you're putting into it. And I think another part that you mentioned there was um, the $8,000 commission. To some people, that's nothing. That's um, like what they would spend on a, a shirt if they were uh, feeling like they wanted, they were bored, they want to go shopping. And we can't relate to that. Well, at least I can't. Um, <laughs> or I want to, I spend thirty dollars on a shirt, and I feel like, uh, did I really need to spend that? I, I'd be just as comfortable wearing a plain white T-shirt for you know two dollars from uh, Hanes or whatever. Um, but to, there is an audience out there that's substantially larger than you might think that can drop ten thousand dollars on a day and just say that was neat. That person got to perform their magic for me. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. And the, 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 it varies day to day too, because it's not like there's a singular pool of people who are buying commissions and it never changes. People leave that pool and enter that pool and people get financial windfalls and go, I can finally get the art I always wanted from this person. You, you never really know what you're dealing with. Um, I've heard it discussed before, and I was actually in this position too, where it's like, well, when you charge a lot more, you're also locking certain people out of being able to get commissions from you and it feels bad and it's like, yeah, but you're balancing that as a personal decision versus what you should be making for your job. Because at that point, you know, if you were like, oh, I'm running a taco shop, I'm selling tacos, my tacos are $2, they're pretty sizable. I need to move this to three, though, because the cost of meat's gone up. And also, I like having money. And you do that. And then like, two of your regulars are like, well, I can't afford a $3 taco, I can only afford a two. You aren't 
going to start going, well, never mind. I'm just going to only sell these for two forever. It's just an unfortunate circumstance. And if they really care about supporting you or your work, they'll have to understand. And if they're a regular, you know, you can figure something out if you really want to, but you have to look overall at your, you know, your finances as some people link their personal worth to it. You know, they're like, oh, I have, um, imposter syndrome you know i don't think i'm worth this much it's like well, yeah find a way to get past it you can have imposter syndrome and you can deal with that but you do need to deal with it then and understand you need to get yourself into a, a position where you can get paid regardless of how you feel about your work if you're going to stay in and support yourself off of that otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're physically going to fall apart from the amount of work you're doing for almost nothing and then you'll be like why do why do other people i talk to you know they have a car and they have a comfortable place they aren't crying themselves to sleep at night because they're so broke you know um the other side of that too is if you feel that you haven't developed your art enough to get into the price range that you want to be it's not a failure to get a different job and work on your art and then come back to art as a job. And and that gets talked about sometimes, but it gets talked about as this weird space, like, oh, you failed. Like, I failed at art, but I'll go back to it. It's like, you didn't fail at anything, dude. The market's crazy and art's crazy and it's super saturated. You know, it's it, visibility's hard to get. And uh, if you're like, oh, I really just wanna focus on my art and not have to do work for other people and stress about it, but I need to make money, Sometimes, you know, I've I've had friends who were like, well, I went and got a different job and then my art just improved because I was able to just focus on it outside of that job. Yeah, you know, you're going to be tired from the job, but that's dude, that's just how it goes. Like, you, I, I hate to break it to you unless you're really lucky. You're going to always have to work some way or another. Um, so, you know, you'll have to figure that part out. But it's not a failure to go like, I'm going to focus on my art on my own and do something else for a living. And I've known people who liked that so much, they just ended up getting a different job that supported that lifestyle and just did art as a hobby. And people are like, are you doing it as a hobby? You're insane. And they're like, yeah, but I don't want to give this up. I don't want this to be my income because I'm happier this way. But you could go back and make it your income. And you're like, yeah, I'm worth this much. And people will be like, okay. You know, I want to pay that for the thing that you're doing, D&D art, pinups, whatever you're doing, um, however you're doing it, you know. Um, also outside of that is certain subject matters sell better than other subject matters, and you just need to be aware of that. Um, it's an unfortunate truth that the thing you like to spend your time drawing may not be what the overall majority of people are interested in looking at. And at that point, I'd say you've got to make the choice. Do you want to just get so good at it that people don't care and it creates, you know, the the demand for your market or do you want to adjust it or whatever? But that's more your personal satisfaction out of your work than what you're making financially from it. And uh, I think it's more like a, a time effectiveness issue when you're thinking about getting a job to um, pay. You could work for $2 an hour drawing. Or you could get you know fifteen to twenty dollars an hour doing whatever that uh, part time job is or full time, um, and then when you're home, you can dedicate that time explicitly to improving your art skill rather than trying to fulfill orders that would basically be playing in your uh, in your in your safe zone over and over again, and just hoping that that eventually will become easier somehow yeah. rather than studying. It's um. I had I had one friend in specific who actually was just like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm working morning tonight. I'm just to just to pay the bills or whatever, and it, this isn't working out. And they they did that. They they were like, what's what's my hourly rate? Because they didn't charge hourly; they charged per 
per thing that they worked on. Um, which is honestly how I worked too. I actually never charged hourly because I understood what that translated to. And I was just like, I'm just going to go with block amounts. Um, also, I just happened to be really fast at what I did. So that helped. But um, they, uh, so hourly would have hurt me is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, they they went and, and just shifted to a, a job that paid better and were like, this is great because their complaint initially was, I'm doing the art and I'm working so hard, but I can't, you know, support myself and my bills are going late and stuff. And I'm like, dude, if your bills are going late and you have the option of getting a different job, you shouldn't have gotten to this point. You should have either found a way to raise your prices and make it work. And if you couldn't, which they couldn't at that time, shift into a job that supports you because it's not worth it in the long run to wreck your credit, wreck your finances, go into debt to go just to be able to say, I'm an artist for a living. Like, dude, you can be an artist, not for a living. And no one's going to go, Oh, you're not an artist now. You don't, you know, it's like, that's ridiculous. People can see you're doing art. It's fine. You're an artist, you know, you're whatever you want to be at that point. But, but seeing somebody almost destroy their life long term because they wanted to be called a professional artist was scary. Um, and and all that pressure went away. They got a, a part-time, which became a full-time job because they were comfortable doing it and just worked on art for fun, fell back in love with art, which is something I did with my art that I talk about all the time. And then when they actually did transition back to doing art for a living, they were paid better. They felt more confident in it. They had that passion for it again and had redefined what they wanted to work on. So they actually shifted subjects into something that they liked more and were able to find that market and they weren't in debt anymore. So, you know, they were able to eat and not go, am I going to have to live out of my car next month? You know, that kind of thing. I have to, I just, I'm sorry. I have to address an objection that I know is being raised at this point is that we're three male white Westerners talking about minimum wage, $15 an hour. Um, and in lots of places in the world, that's potentially quite luxurious and like lavish. And the objection that some will that I've seen raised on Twitter is that, you that know, we've like, raised a dozen times in this podcast. I and addressed it. <laughs> I, 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 are you saying that I shouldn't? <laughs> I mean, because we can just gloss over it really quick. Cause that's, it's repeating yourself I'm, ad nauseum at this point. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it comes up and it comes up because people often act like they haven't heard this conversation before. And certainly the objection has been raised more times than we've had this conversation as many times as we've had it. The thing that I'm getting at is that if you're raising that objection, my, my gentle uh, suggestion is don't because let's not give the developing world another reason to undersell themselves to the West. Let's encourage people to raise their prices everywhere so that regardless of where you're living, your standard of living increases. That's all that I wanted to say. I will say that right now, um, I've got a buddy who lives over in Brazil um, where the expectation of what a salary would be is much lower than uh, right here in Southern California. But since work from home is a much greater option and contract work is a much greater option than it used to be, they're making Southern California rates while living in Brazil, which makes them quite rich over there right now. Um, and the question came up at one point of like, do 
do we give a different rate over there? And the answer was no, demand the same rate for the same work from the same company, regardless of where you are in the world. Because the company's not gonna go instinctively like, oh, you're over there? Well then, you know, uh, we'll, we'll give you that rate. You need to go like, it doesn't matter where I am. If you're hiring for this job, we need to get paid for this job. And what I would be if I were local, if I weren't. Um, it's different if you're going in office, because then there's an expectation if you're actually physically going in office, you might be paid more because that's something you're doing on top of that. But if I were working from home here for, for company A and you're working from home for company A from somewhere where the pay rate is way, way lower, we should be making the same money for if we're doing the same work for the same position. And uh, and I really don't like the, the that it even comes up in the conversation that people should be paid less because they live over there or as opposed to over this other place. Like that's ridiculous and gross. And uh, and also really funny because then in that same conversation, someone else will always pop up and go like, oh, yeah, I moved over here because cost of living was so less. And now I make even more. But then in the same breath, be like, oh, you live over there. You shouldn't be making that much. You're like insanely rich. It's like, why not? Like, so you're going to devalue someone because of where they were on the risk board. You know what I mean? Like, that's ridiculous. And uh, there's that nomad list uh, website. I linked it in one that was in the thread as well. And I had some people saying, well, now we're going to have a bunch of white people moving in to Thailand and uh, making it so that people there can't live there anymore. I don't think we're going to see it that at scale. I think we'll see individuals move over. I don't think it's going to be uh, entire cities from Los Angeles moving to Thailand. And then suddenly that city in Thailand is now just Los Angeles too. I think there's too many people who want to live in Los Angeles honestly is what it comes down to there's like people who I'd be like I'm right by Hollywood or like you know like we talk about the cost of living in San Fran like where it's like oh well million dollar you know homes and whatnot but yet with as much people are leaving San Fran people are moving to San Fran because there's now a weird prestige attached to it too as well as the people who actually just wanted to live in that area um, and I did see, by the way, that it was being discussed that like some companies will actually will lower their pay rates depending on where somebody lives for the same job. And that is a thing that happens. And I freaking hate that. And I think that that I think that that you need to consider when you work for a company. And if you know that they're doing that to you, consider if that's the kind of company you want to work with. This Twitter thread that Moose did one of the interesting things about it um, is that it got so little hate. <laughs> like I was when he sent, you know, he, he passed it around to some people to sort of like preview. And I didn't say this at the time, but I was just like, Oh my God, this is going to get flamed so hard. And I got that warning from other people. Don't worry. <laughs> and it, and it went fucking gangbangers viral. And the whole time I'm just like any minute now, he, like, Moose is going to get canceled. He's going to get doxxed, death threats. And it never happened. Like, the overwhelming response was was positive, which is fucking awesome. I was a little bit surprised. Not disappointed. <laughs> just surprised. Um, because I've seen so much hate and vitriol thrown at, you know, artists. I don't, well, never mind that. Yeah, at artists for discussing their prices and trying to make the case for, you know, a certain, you know, level of, of pricing. Um, but it, this only happens in the freelance world. You know, if, it, if we're talking about 
industries where artists work that have standards of pay well no one's arguing well maybe some people are are but you're not going to hear people going like oh well you shouldn't pay them that much or this is how much the industry should actually be standardizing the pay at and that's because there's an industry for there to even be a standard within and freelancing doesn't have that and it's it's I don't, I don't know. It's weird to me when like the conversation wants to get squashed because it's like, well, of course you should be having that, that discussion. Like why, why, why wouldn't you? I, think I'm not, that, I, don't, that, I wasn't going anywhere necessarily. With that. No, no, that's good. That, that conversation, uh, that conversation happens very differently within the industry. You'll see it pop up on Twitter sometimes where people are like, well, these companies pay this rate and these companies pay this rate and we should be pushing towards the top because certain companies are starting to lowball where they didn't before and so on and so forth. But like you said, there is still like inherently within the industry the conversation is what is the industry standard whereas with freelance there is no conversation of what is the industry standard um i think a lot of old guard people too really liked to gatekeep stuff um and you know new school people do it too sometimes but in freelance they were just like well this is how it is and this is how it was for me and no one should have it better because you know i had to deal with this so if you don't have to deal with this how do i validate what i dealt with you know and that's that's a gross attitude but it's a real attitude um and you'll get that in the industry sometimes but it's way more prominent in freelance where people kind of still treat it like the wild west and it's like well if i say something is fact and i'm a freelancer people might think it's actually real you know and and those are a lot of twitter posts you get sometimes and those get a lot more hate than the one Moose posted because it's hard to argue when Moose posts a whole bunch of things of like, you should treat people better and pay people better and you should protect your investment of time and effort better and here's some avenues to do that and people to talk to about that. It's hard to look good when you're like, no, you know, it's like, it's kind of universally like, hey, we should feed people, right? And it's like, no, people should start. It's like, no, that's that's not a good look. So part of it, I think, is people don't want to signal that they're actually the dicks that they are sometimes. But um, the other hand of that is it's it's just solid information coming from a solid place for people who need it. And it's it's a discussion that even though it doesn't happen that often, people know needs to happen, which is what would an industry standard for freelance look like, or at least some kind of what is the lowest floor we should be considering for an expectation of work and ability. Because, I mean, people more and more are like, I want to live freelance because I want to be my own boss. That's a different discussion because most people I know who live freelance aren't really their own bosses. Their bosses just change day to day. Um, you know, they're like, oh, I can make my own schedule. I can do whatever I want. I'm like, then why are you working all the time? And you're like, I can't hang out because I've got to do this. And then you're like, oh, and this person wanted that. And then I need to do these changes. It's like, it's the same thing. It's just more comfortable for you to do it this way. And you can say no to people easier. Because like, if I get assigned something at work, I can say no but depending on the conversation, I might get, you know, a, a reaction gif of a whole bunch of people laughing or something because they're like, that's not going to be a thing you say no to. Whereas in freelance, I, you know, I had rotten clients and I was able to tell them to go to hell and that was the end of that. Um, but it, it really, it, it's a conversation that needs to constantly happen. There will be a refresh point in a month where people will think that the post from Moose has never happened and it's never been talked about before. And we'll have to go through all of this again. It's like a groundhog day of 
information, but you're hoping each time a little another particle of it sticks around until we've built more confidence in people to understand what it means to protect yourself, to make a livable wage as a freelancer and and not feel ashamed if you're making good money. Because for some reason, people go, oh, you work as a concept artist or illustrator in the industry, you know, oh, you're not making enough. But then when freelancers are like, oh, I made, you know, a couple grand this month, they're like, oh, psh, then you made enough. You don't need more money. Like, why should I pay a high amount? You're already rich. And it's it's weird because people won't treat industry people that way. Well, they do, but not as much. But it's moment that a freelancer is successful. It's like when people were talking to a band and telling them, oh, you sold out because you got the record deal that you always wanted. And it's like, that's not selling out. It's called making a living, doing the thing that you wanted to do, which you set out to do when you started doing that thing. Which is why I always want to repeat these things, even as Moose rolls his eyes at them. <laughs> because it's, oh, and just in time, he cut out so I can talk about this while he's gone. Um, yeah, this, anytime, it, anytime the conversation comes up, there are the detractors, there are the people that bring objections and, um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not for me to say that like the objections shouldn't be raised and God, will you just shut up with it already? It's like, no, please, you know, raise the objection. Let's talk about it, you know, cause that should be part of the conversation as well. I mean, what good is an echo chamber as we all know? So, you know, by all means, let's, you know, have all vantage points brought in, but then let's also, you know, have those, you know, replies uh, ready. And since there's a lot of people that we're not having this conversation with, as we have it amongst the three of us, <laughs> we have to sort of take it that into account. With them uh, last time, actually. What's a that? A little bit. We, I think we had the problem, uh, the talk about uh, uh, prices with Jay a little bit uh, last time, actually. And he's nodding. Yeah, it was a little bit. It was there. But a little I mean, bit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Again, it's going like, to... You have to refresh it. You have to talk about it again. You have to you have to get it in people's minds because they'll forget about it. You know what I mean? And uh, the funny thing was, even though that thread did go viral, and that was fun, it obviously didn't help me in any way because it's not my career. Um, but uh, I think it was like currently about 2 million people have seen the thread, but only about 30,000 have read the entire thing. So for, for most of those people, they didn't get very much out of it. So this is something that it's there. If you want to, if these people want to reread later, they can, if they can find it again on Twitter, good luck. Um, but it's like Jay said, this stuff, it was, uh, it's going to have to come back around, whether it's small pieces of it individually into smaller threads so they can uh, absorb it more readily or all at once again by somebody else. Um, good luck to that person. Hopefully they're not, uh, someone like Carla Ortiz who gets flack for whatever she says on Twitter. Um, I think that's probably why I didn't get any flack because I'm a nobody. Like they say this little moose icon. They're like, I'm not going to argue with a moose. And then, so that's a, that's that. Well, I mean, nobody is subjective when, I mean, if you, if you have a, a post that goes viral on Twitter, <laughs> you're not nobody I mean, anymore. That was expending a lot of social capital though. Like uh, I reached out to a ton of people before it went live and said, Hey, I'm writing this. Would you mind reading it? Let me know what you think. And uh, if you agree with it, would you mind re retweeting it tomorrow when I post it live? And then I'll, for the first time ever, you make use of the social media, uh, social media support uh, sessions of all the Discord channels, and be like, all right, post it here. You know, retweet, like, comment if you like. I appreciate it. Um, 
it's not my career, so I never actually have to do that again, hopefully. Well, we'll talk about it later. But, uh, but as far as this goes, that was me uh, using up all the capital I'd gained over the past uh, five years by helping people. So that was me asking for a little bit of help for the first time ever. So maybe that contributed to the initial burst of uh, retweets from people that I had been supporting. And then now they had to find a chance to support me in doing something. Well, you just mentioned something that we might talk about later, but I think we're at later. Like we're coming into the two hour mark right now. And there is, I, I'm looking at uh, some questions that we had slated that we didn't get to. I'm tempted to put a pin in it here and just, and plan on JB and back for a third round. How do you guys feel? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll come back anytime you want. It's always a pleasure talking with both of you. So, I mean, and it, and it's, it's good conversation. And like I said, I, I like doing podcasts because it's, it gives a lot more context for everything. So I'm, I'm always up for, for whatever. I'll promise not to uh, bring up pricing again. Uh, I was going to say, actually, I don't want to have Jay back on the uh, podcast because he hasn't had me on his podcast, and I feel slighted. No, I'm kidding. What am wow. I going to do? Draw boxes uh, <laughs> while he's uh, while he's drawing. I'm going to draw. Actually, I'm going to do a, a draw box challenge while he's uh, doing some awesome illustration. What's what's? I'm actually going to have some some non artists on the podcast. So I mean, if you want to be on, it's 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 art and art adjacent and um, art adjacent careers as well as just art adjacent conversation. So, I mean, if you're actually interested, that's that's a totally doable thing. Um, I'm actually going to have a buddy of mine, a close buddy of mine, who definitely won't be doing art on stream, but is kind of buried in, you know, the the art arena constantly. And it's just, it's supposed to be interesting and good conversation about art or, or relatable things. So, it's totally doable. Well, uh, I didn't mean to invite myself on, so now I feel bad. It only feel bad if you don't want to be on. Then, then you should feel bad. We'll have both of us on at the same time and call it art <laughs> condition and uh... <laughs> uh, call it conditional art. Oh, even better! Why didn't I think of that? No, that's okay. I'm. Uh, I don't want to be around Joby anymore either. I don't want to be around myself. I, I I wish that I could get away from me too. The band is breaking up. It's the Beatles all over again. I'm Paul, you're Ringo. <laughs> Ringo? Who's Ringo? Oh, Get man. It? Absolutely. Get it? Um, yeah, I mean, I want to talk to you more about the, the game. There's question, more questions I had about the, the game you're making, more freelance stuff, portfolios, how to make a good portfolio, how to get hired. Um, we're, just, we're just not going to get to it all today. Um, so yeah, I do want to throw in uh, some thoughts on game development. Uh, so if people that want more resources on that and they didn't watch the episode with Forrest Immel, you can go ahead and watch that one because we talked about that a little bit at the end of that episode. Uh, you can watch Game Maker's Toolkit on YouTube. It's some really cool videos. Even if you're not interested in making games, it's a lot of useful information that's fun to watch. Similarly, on Extra Credits, um, they got rid of some troublesome people on that, uh, so it's good to watch again. Uh, but it's also turned into more of a history channel now, which is kind of neat. So Shane might enjoy that. But the older content is almost exclusively the fundamentals of game design. So there's some useful information to learn from there as well. 
and all of those links will be in the show notes too so definitely check that out um jay uh i'm sorry to just like cut it off but this seemed like a good point to do that um but where would you like people to find you as we wrap it up where would you like people to find you and um more information uh generally my twitter is is honestly the place to go right now um which is just uh, twitter.com slash jaxer, J-A-Y-A-X-E-R. It's all one word name. Um, and uh, that, that kind of portals to anything else I'm doing. I post when I'm streaming on there. Uh, I am on Twitch under the same handle. This is just J-A-Y-A-X-E-R. And uh, I, any work in progress work, stuff I'm working on, streams I'm going to be doing, sometimes informational, sometimes just hanging out and talking about art stuff. I also do my own uh, kind of art cast where I draw with people unless they don't draw, like I said, and and talk about careers and art on Twitch as well. All of that gets linked back to the Twitter. So that's the number one place to find what I'm doing, my work, stuff like that. Um, and if I ever post anything that has to do with my official job, which is, uh, over on Hearthstone, I post that stuff on Twitter as well. And our famously infamous last question, what's one thing in the world, Jay, that you're excited about right now? Uh, just one thing (laughs) is always difficult. Um, I'm. I'm excited about people hopefully pushing back on the social restrictions that people have been putting on uh, what a person can be and uh, how they are allowed to treat each other. I think there's been a lot of abuse and anger and whatnot because of uh, political reasons. And it's nice to see that it hasn't just been stamped out and people can still try to stand strong. And I'm hoping that that as we move forward, that voice will remain and not just kind of wane again. Um, that's, that's something I'm excited about. Amen. I appreciate that, man. And thank you. The download of information is always so impressive. Jay, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right. I will wave goodbye here as I end.